Welcome to the Melbourne Business School podcast channel. I'm Jan Marshall from Melbourne Business School. In this masterclass, Melbourne Business School's Dr. Sam Wiley takes a deep look at the hot issue of property market bubbles. What causes them and whether we have one in Australia now? You're an expert hands with Dr. Wiley who has written extensively on banking, wealth management and corporate finance. Dr. Wiley has also worked with a range of firms including Australian Super, National Australia Bank, BHP and many others. He is a seven-time winner of the Teaching Excellence Prize on Melbourne Business School's MBA and Executive MBA programs, which you can read about in the Qantas magazine in your seat pocket. But for now, let me welcome you to Dr. Sam Wiley's Masterclass. Hello, this is a talk about bubbles in housing prices and whether there's a bubble in housing prices in Australia today. We'll come to that in a bit, but first I'm going to step back and talk about what bubbles are and what causes them. So what do we mean by a bubble? Well, we mean that, that the cash flows that will be delivered by an asset, the cash flows that will be delivered by a share or a bond or property, don't justify the price that that asset has reached. So the dividends of a share don't justify the share price or the, the coupons or interest on a bond don't justify the price the bond has reached or the rents on a property don't justify the property price. So bubbles are a form of irrationality where irrational exuberance or overexcitement about the prospects for an asset drive the price of the asset above the fundamental value that we can get from looking at the cash flows that are going to be delivered in the future. Now bubbles are rare because they're hard to form and sustain. And, and that's because people act against them. As I said, they're a form of irrationality and rational agents in the market, rational players in the market can take advantage of bubbles. When prices start to rise above fundamental values, rational agents can come in and sell assets and then buy them back after the price has fallen to its fundamental value and pocket the difference. And even if they don't own the asset, they can borrow and sell the asset. They can short sell the asset. Uh, or alternatively, they can create the asset in some circumstances, such as in property markets. They can build property and deliver it into the market. But let's stick with short selling for the moment here, borrowing and selling assets into the market uh, to burst bubbles or to profit from prices being above their fundamental value. And let's take an example of short selling. We'll use BHP for that purpose and let's just imagine that BHP share price today is $25 and you think that that's too high and that it's going to go down to $20. So if you own BHP shares, then you would sell them into the market. If you didn't own BHP shares, then what are you going to do? Well, you would borrow the shares and sell them into the market. Let's say that you borrowed 1,000 BHP shares. We'll talk about who you'd borrow them from in just a moment. You sell them into the market. Now you've got $25,000 in cash. Now the share price goes down to $20 per share. So you can use 20 of your $25,000 of cash to buy back the shares and discharge your liability there. And you've got $5,000 approximately left over. You'd have to pay some fees to whoever it is you borrowed the shares from. And that might be superannuation fund, for instance, um, super funds amongst others are willing to lend out their shares for a period of time so long as they earn a reasonable fee um, for that purpose. And short selling has a bad name, which it doesn't really deserve. 
it's necessary to have some mechanism for a healthy market. You need a mechanism for negative and positive sentiments to be expressed in the market. We need all of the opinions of the market to be expressed in the price to stop the market from being biased in one way or, or the other and getting away from fundamental value. So positive sentiments about share prices or, or, or property can always be expressed. People can always go long. They can always buy the asset. Uh, but negative sentiments can only be expressed either by selling the asset by people who own it and, and shorting by people who don't own the asset. So shorting is a mechanism for negative sentiments to be expressed in the market. And when shorting isn't possible, then the channel for positive sentiment is open and the channel for negative sentiment is partially or largely closed. And that can lead to irrational positive, it can lead to a bias towards uh, uh, positive views of the market and prices rising above their fundamental value. So short selling has a bad rep because people think it causes prices to fall. But really, it just leads prices falling because it's bringing information into the market. It is true that short selling can be damaging uh, to banks and other financial institutions during a financial crisis, and it's a good reason, it's a good idea to ban short selling on financial institutions during a financial crisis, and that usually happens. But otherwise, it's not a good idea to ban short selling. It's actually having a short selling mechanism is a, a, quite a healthy thing. Now, let's think about the real estate market. Let's imagine that you decided to, let's imagine that you thought that apartments in inner city Melbourne were a bubble, that they were above their fundamental value and that they would fall to their fundamental value sometime in the relatively near future. Okay, what's your next move? Are you going to borrow some apartments, sell them into the market, buy them back once their price has fallen? Well, of course not. Short selling is impossible in property. And it's because short selling is impossible. It's because the channel for negative sentiment is blocked in property, always blocked in property, that most bubbles occur in property. Bubbles are rare, even in property, but by far the largest number of bubbles that have ever occurred have been in the property market as opposed to the bond market or, or to the stock market. Bubbles do occur in other markets from time to time. Think of the dot-com uh, bubble, which occurred between 1996 and, and March 2000 in the NASDAQ exchange uh, in the United States, where there were internet companies listed on NASDAQ that didn't have any sales, let alone any profits, and nonetheless their shares were selling at very high prices. That was definitely a bubble. Uh, and the reason the bubble wasn't burst immediately, the reason that people who thought that internet share prices were way too high uh, such as Warren Buffett or the legendary analyst Abby Cohen, the reason that they couldn't act or advise their clients to act uh, by short selling the shares was it was very difficult to borrow those shares for the purpose of short selling. Most of those shares were tightly held when they listed on the stock market. Only 20% of the shares were sold and 80% were held by the founders of the company. And those founders were prevented for two or three years from selling their shares. Uh, and the 20% of float in the market, as we would say, uh, it was they were tightly held as well. It was hard for short sellers to acquire any of those shares, to borrow those shares and to sell them into the market because they weren't really held by super funds or other institutional investors. So short selling was impossible and that allowed a bubble to arise. 
But then in around March of 2000, quite a lot of the shares that had listed on the NASDAQ exchange two or three years previously, their lockup period of the 80% came to an end. And now the founders of the company could sell down their ownership, which expanded the float, and it made it a lot easier to borrow shares for the purpose of short selling. And when the short selling constraint was released, then the bubble was burst. Now, something happened in the, in the bond market that is similar to that in the lead up to the GFC. There was a bubble in many bond markets in lead up to the GFC, but especially in bond markets that were backed in instrument, in bonds that were backed by housing. So there were CDO uh, bonds. There was a bubble in many bond markets in the lead up to the, to the GFC, but especially in bond markets um, that were backed by housing. So there were collateralized debt obligations that were backed by housing. They were actually claims on claims on housing, but they were ultimately backed by housing. And as housing went into a bubble, they went into a bubble. And the famous book and movie, The Big Short by Michael Lewis, um, that is describing hedge funds and investment banks trying to find a mechanism, trying to find a way to short those CDOs. And when they eventually do find a way to short the CDOs, um, then, they, uh, then they, they end up bursting the bubble. So bubbles can arise when short selling is constrained, especially in real estate where it's always constrained. And when a short selling constraint goes away, uh, then bubbles get burst. Now it's also true, of course, that bubbles can be not so much burst, but the air can go out of bubbles when new assets are created. So in the property market, we can't short sell, but if property prices get above the price of producing the property, producing new property, especially apartments, then the increased supply is eventually going to let the air out of the bubble. There was an element of that uh, occurred in the dot-com bubble, where Short selling was constrained, but there was no constraint on people actually creating shares rather than borrowing them. So now this sounds very cynical and it is a very cynical exercise. What happened was that some investors created new internet firms and listed them on the stock market really for the purpose not of creating great products and financing uh, uh, great products, the production of great products, such as ordinarily occurs through the stock market, but they listed, created and listed those companies on the stock market simply for the purpose of having shares in their possession that they could sell into the market. Uh, and, and, and that had some effect, but, but wasn't strong enough to actually burst the bubble. It was the, it was the relaxing or the short selling constraint that did that. You're listening to Dr. Sam Wiley's Masterclass podcast. After the break, Sam will tell us whether there really is a property bubble in this country. To those chosen to come here, and to the organisations they represent. Congratulations and welcome. You're making a clear announcement that you want to do more, achieve more and be more. While you're with us, you'll be among the best, learning from the best. You'll leave changed and then be called upon to lead change. So to you we say, welcome to Melbourne Business School. Welcome to the world class. Thanks for tuning in, and now we're back with Dr. Sam Wiley to pick up where we left off. Now let's turn to quantitative easing just for a moment before we get into to talking about the pros and cons of, the, uh, of whether there is a, a bubble in Australian housing prices at the moment. 
Quantitative easing is the process of creating new money to try to stimulate the economy. And $12 trillion of quantitative easing has been done across the US, the UK, and Europe, and Japan since the beginning of the GFC. It hasn't come to Australia, um, thankfully. Quantitative easing is the creation of new money, but it's not the creation, it's not the printing of new money, as people often say. That's a misconception. It's not the printing of new currency. Money exists in more than one form. It's actually the creation of new bank reserves at the central bank. We don't need to worry about that. All we need to worry about is that quantitative easing creates new deposits in banks, deposits that have to be held by households or corporations or superannuation funds or someone else. All deposits have to be held by somebody. And when a huge amount of new deposits are created by quantitative easing, then circumstances have to change so that people are prepared to hold those deposits. And in the United States, for instance, there was in the first, in the three rounds of quantitative easing, QE1, QE2, and QE3, $7 trillion of new deposits were created. There was $4 trillion of quantitative easing, which turned into $7 trillion of new deposits. Deposits in the States before the GFC, total bank deposits $6.6 trillion. Now, in 2016, they're nearly $13.6 trillion. So that $7 trillion of extra deposits has to be held by somebody. And why, will they, why would you agree to hold deposits as part of your investments when you get zero interest rate on the deposits? Well, there's two reasons. One is you might want the protection that, that the government affords to deposits. In Australia and then in the US, there is explicit deposit insurance up to $250,000. Uh, and people want that in these very dangerous times of the GFC. And they can only get that by putting your money in the bank. But more importantly than that, people will hold their money in the bank if they think that all other asset prices uh, have gone beyond their, their fundamental value. Money gets passed around from investor to investor. Uh, buying of assets, where the asset goes to one investor and the cash goes to another. And then that investor buys assets from a, from, from a third investor. Money gets passed around and asset prices get pushed up until there's a set of investors who think, I would invest in stocks or I would invest in bonds or I would invest in real estate, except that their prices have been pushed up too high. So I'm happy to hold deposits. And so when you pump new money into the system in quantitative easing, it creates new deposits and that money gets passed around until we reach an equilibrium of some households and firms being happy to hold those deposits. But that only happens if asset prices, stock prices and bond prices and real estate prices rise sufficiently. So as more money gets pumped into the system in quantitative easing, which goes on in Japan and in the UK, then asset prices simply have to rise uh, uh, because of that. So we live in a world of massive quantitative easing, which has raised asset prices all around the world. Australia, thankfully, doesn't have quantitative easing, but we're not isolated from financial markets either. As asset prices get pushed up around the world, they rise in Australia uh, as well. So let's discuss housing prices for a minute before we go on to, the, to discussing whether a bubble exists or not. Imagine that you had before you a graph that showed housing prices in various developed countries, the US, the UK, France, Germany, Japan, Australia, uh, from 1900 to the present. Then the, 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 the line that showed US housing prices would hardly have gone up 
housing prices in the US after the adjustment for inflation, real housing prices in the US are not much more than they were in 1900. Now they've gone up and down and there was a, there was a bubble before the GFC where they zoomed up and then they crashed after that, but they are not much more than they were in 1900. The, the, the cost of housing or the price of houses in the United States is driven principally by the cost of building new houses and that hasn't risen significantly in real terms. So housing prices haven't risen significantly. In Australia, other factors are at play and Australia, of all of the major economies, has experienced very large growth in housing prices over the last 116 years. Housing prices are in 2016 950% of what they were in 1900. Uh, so, you know, really a very elevated level and that feeds into whether we are uh, experiencing a bubble or not. That's definitely evidence for there being a bubble at the moment. Now, when you look at the graph of Australia's housing prices, you don't see many falls over long periods of time or sharp falls or hardly any falls of any kind. What you see is long flat periods where housing prices don't go up and then short, sharp periods where they, where they jolt upwards. So we may well be in a short, sharp period, which had a flat period beforehand and a flat period to follow. Who knows what will happen to housing prices? But if we experienced a sharp jump up in share prices in Australia of 30 or 40%, and then there was a flat period for five or eight years, that would not be at all unusual. That's happened seven or eight times in Australia's history. That's not, that's not a, a bubble. That's really the norm in Australia. It seems that the reason that house prices don't go down in Australia for long periods of time, and I'm not suggesting that can't happen, but it seems that the reason that that doesn't happen is because, is because when demand for housing goes down, that's not met by a fall in prices. That is met by a fall in supply. So when prices, when demand goes down, instead of prices falling, people withdraw from the market. Households in Australia are not prepared to accept a capital loss, so they withdraw from the market uh, rather than sell their houses. And then, of course, with the passage of time, demand builds up again and then prices uh, lurch forward. If we come closer to the present, if we take the short view, looking at housing prices in the last five years, we'd see that in Australia, since the end of 2012, housing prices have risen substantially. In, the, in, in Sydney, they've gone up by 60%, the most of any capital city. There's two things to say about that. One is, some of that is the restoration of relativity between Sydney and other cities in Australia, especially between Sydney and the smaller capital cities, Perth and Adelaide uh, uh, and Hobart and others, and the ACT and others. If we take a shorter view of property prices in Australia and look at what's happened since the end of 2012, we see that property prices fell a bit in 2012, which is unusual, and then after 2012, they have risen considerably, especially in Sydney and Melbourne. In Sydney, housing prices are up 60% since the end of 2012. Now, some of that is the restoration of relativity between Sydney and other capitals in Australia, especially between Sydney and Perth and Adelaide after the, the, the mining boom and, and surges in housing prices there before the GFC. But a second thing that we should note here is that a rise of 30 or 40% in Australian housing prices across the country 
That isn't really what we're thinking of in terms of international bubbles. In Japan, when they had a property bubble in the, in the late 1980s through to 1991, commercial property prices went up 650%. Residential property prices went up nearly 400%. In Ireland, residential property prices in their uh, housing bubble went up 350%. Massive increases in the US leading up to the GFC. The, the property bubble in, in, in Spain, the same thing. An order of magnitude more than 30 or 40%. So we shouldn't look at recent prices in Australia and think that that's really of the same scale as a, as a property bubble. Okay, let's get into more detail now about the arguments for and against whether we have a property bubble. Let's start with the for argument and let's concentrate on prices, capacity to pay and supply of housing. We've already talked about housing prices being very elevated in Australia relative to 1900 and, and the experience of other countries. But we should also note that the fraction of Australian households wealth that is, that is tied up in residential housing is much higher than in other countries. In the United States, for instance, the total wealth of US households, only about 25%, a little over 25% of that is tied up in residential housing. In Australia, about 65% of the wealth of Australian households is tied up in residential housing. 65% in Australia versus 25% in the US. In fact, the total value of residential housing in the US is only about, when we convert it to, to Aussie dollars, is only about five times that of Australia. 30 trillion in the US, six trillion dollars of, of housing uh, uh, in Australia. Even though the US economy is 15 times bigger than the Australian economy, the value of housing is only about five times bigger, which shows you what, uh, I mean, that's really a restatement of the previous uh, discussion about how much housing prices have risen in Australia versus the US since 1900. Housing prices are already very dominant in the wealth of Australian households. The capacity to pay for higher prices is, is therefore, pay higher prices for housing is therefore constrained. You know, household borrowing is already extremely high. The total debt of Australian households is about 175% of disposable income and rising. In, in most developed countries, it's lower than that. In Germany, it's only 80% of disposable income and falling, and it's falling rapidly in the UK and in the US as well. So our high level of debt of households, which is rising, is in stark contrast to much lower levels in other developed countries and, and falling. So how much capacity is there for extra debt to support uh, higher prices. It's also true that the median house price in Australia is a multiple of the median disposable income of Australian households, being about five times, the average house price being uh, about five times more than disposable income, is that's a much higher figure than in most other developed countries. Now still on the matter of capacity to, to, to pay higher prices for houses, Wage growth in Australia at the moment is historically low. It's wages that ultimately finance the purchase and debt support of housing. And wage growth in Australia is close to zero, uh, which is, as I said, historically low. It's a wonder that that hasn't been more of a, of a political issue in Australia. It's also true that the yields on, on houses that are rented out have fallen to, to very low levels at the moment. Now, turning from capacity to pay, in the arguments uh, for there being a bubble to supply of housing, supply is growing 
very rapidly. 250,000 housing units are being built every year in Australia. Not long ago, that was 160,000, and, and that's more of, a, of the historical level. Uh, the building of houses is up 50% over the last three years. There's a, a surge in supply. Uh, now, ultimately, if that surge in supply, especially the surge in supply of apartments, goes on for a long period of time, then it will, it will unwind prices. It will, um, we, we will see prices decline. And so that's evidence that we, we possibly face a bubble at the moment. Now, there's a lot of evidence against there being a bubble. And, and the, the emphasis that I'm putting on the against here, you can tell that ultimately I don't think that there is a bubble in Australia. And, and the evidence goes into these categories. Demographics, excess demand, access to global markets, zoning restrictions, and the economy. So in terms of the arguments against there being a bubble, demographics is very strong here. Australia has a rapidly growing population, 1.4% per year our population is growing at. That's much higher than any other developed country in the world. Canada has the next highest, but theirs is less than 1%. In Australia, our population is, is growing at about 0.7% per year because of immigration and about 0.7% per year because of natural increase. We are a vigorous people in Australia. And those demographics really work for the, proper, for the, prop, for the property market. Uh, growing population, more demand, there was a surge in, in population in Australia over the last 10 years, and there wasn't a surge in the building of, of houses. There has been in the last three years, but the surge in population is much longer, has been sustained for much longer than that. And so there's still a big backlog of houses. Uh, there's still a big latent unmet demand from increase in population that hasn't been matched by an increase in supply, even though supply has surged in the last three years. Now, it's also true that the size of households in Australia has fallen over time. If we go back to the 1950s, the average Australian household has about 3.5 people in it. Jump forward to 2016, and the average household has 2.6 people in it. And Australia still has a relatively large number of people per household relative to other developed countries. That could easily fall to 2.3 people per year, per household. So even if you have the same population and, and a smaller number of persons per, per household, then you need more housing units. So if the number of persons per household in Australia was to continue to fall below 2.6 per household, then even absent an increase in the population, we, there would be more demand for housing. Now the next thing is, the leverage in discussing arguments against the bubble is the leverage that Australia has to Asia. So for every person that lives in Australia, putting Australia outside of Asia for the moment, every person that lives in Australia, 180 people live in Asia as broadly defined, including South Asia and Central Asia and Southeast Asia and, and East Asia. So 180 to one. Now the wealth that is accumulating in families in tens of millions of families in Asia is quite astonishing. I mean, that's a well-known thing. But many of those families want to have a stake in Australia. They want to send their children to be educated in Australia. They want to travel to Australia for tourism and for commerce. They want to own property in Australia. And so that demand for property in Australia uh, from wealthy families in Asia in particular, that connection between Australian property market to the accumulation of global wealth 
That's not something that's going away anytime soon. They may have ups and downs associated with it, especially the flow of capital out of China. And there may be changes in the way that that's viewed in Australia uh, politically, but that is not going away. That is a long-term growing trend, creating additional demand for housing in Australia, especially in the gateway cities of Australia, which I refer to as Sydney and, and Melbourne and Brisbane. Uh, and especially in the inner city areas and the, and the inner suburbs uh, of those cities. Now, the next thing is about zoning uh, and the effect of zoning on supply. There has been some relaxation of zoning rules in the last few years to try to stimulate supply of housing to make housing more affordable, but that hasn't been very effective. So there's plenty of supply of additional apartments because it's easy to get zoning for apartments, especially in inner city areas. But it's not easy to get zoning to subdivide and build houses in, uh, in outer suburb areas, and it's even harder to do that, to subdivide and to create more houses in inner suburb areas where supply is essentially fixed. So that lack of extra supply of housing um, means that uh, reduces the, the likelihood that we have a bubble which could be burst or deflated by that extra supply. Now the final point in arguments against there being a bubble is about the strength of the Australian economy. Even in the, the, in the, in the shadow, in the aftermath of, the, the, of collapsing commodity prices, even after the mining boom, our economy continues to grow at 3% real, which is the envy of the world, really. And there isn't any reason why that can't continue for a long period of time. Of course, there'll be ups and downs in the economy, but the economic fundamentals of the Australian economy are very strong. And if the GFC comes back, there's a lot of ammunition to fight that. We have relatively low government debt. We still have positive interest rates. We have a flexible exchange rate. Uh, so the economy is well positioned to support housing prices. So what's the conclusion overall? I don't think that there is a housing bubble in Australia. I don't think it's the increase in housing prices is historically abnormal. I think that's clear in the housing price record. Um, it's, it's not large relative to, to bubbles that we've seen in other countries in recent times, the increases in house prices in Australia since the end of 2013. The arguments against the arguments for there being a bubble um, about the capacity to pay higher prices in particular and, and the low supply of housing in particular particularly in outer suburbs and, and especially in inner suburbs. I don't think that that stacks up against the arguments against there being a bubble. The demographics of Australia, the leverage of Australia into Asia, the, the restrictions on zoning, the strength of the Australian economy. I think when you put the arguments up against each other, the arguments come down against there being a bubble. Now, we should make some distinction between inner city apartments and house, houses in, in outer suburbs and, and in inner leafy suburbs. Inner city apartments don't look like a bubble right at the moment, but they're certainly heading in that direction. Such is the supply of additional apartments that uh, we should definitely be concerned that a bubble is developing. But when we turn to, to houses in outer suburbs and especially houses in inner suburbs, which tap more into the aspiration of, of wealthy uh, families around the world, uh, then we shouldn't be thinking that there's a big bubble in Australia. That doesn't, the growth in those housing prices doesn't look historically uh, very abnormal. 
So thank you for listening. I hope you got something from this podcast and that you will listen to another podcast from me sometime in the near future. You've been listening to Dr. Sam Wiley, Principal Fellow from Melbourne Business School. For more on finance and economics and Dr. Wiley's research in these areas, please visit our website at mbs.edu.